Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. George Herring is alumni professor of history emeritus at the University of Kentucky. He's a native of Virginia, served in the United States Navy, and received his doctorate from the University of Virginia. At UK, he taught classes at all levels. Dr. Herring is a specialist in the history of U.S. foreign relations, and his writing has focused on the Vietnam War. He is the author of several books, and Dr. Herring is also a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and qualified to talk about most anything from the Vietnam War to a talk he titles Abe Lincoln Diplomat. But today we invited Dr. Herring back to the podcast for his thoughts on the events that led up to and including September the 11th, 2001, and how we continue to think about and reflect on 9-11. Dr. Herring. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be back here uh, after about a year. Um, Well, I think with 9-11 is the day that, uh, uh, like Pearl Harbor Day, uh, uh, like the day Kennedy was assassinated, it's one of those days that we remember. We remember it by those two numbers. Uh, For those who live through it, uh, I think we have still very vivid, vivid memories of, of watching that event over and over and over on television, mesmerized as it were. And the fear and the anxiety and the sort of bafflement that this could happen, uh, all of those things, uh, numbness, I recall, in my own self after hours of watching and re-watching and thinking. Were you in the classroom? Uh, No, and interestingly, I had been in New York Mm. over the weekend and came back from New York Sunday night, so it's just a little bit Mm -hmm. short of 9-11. I was waiting to teach a class, interestingly, and found out about it mid-morning, I suppose, and then by that time a television in the office building was on, and... uh, watched the second part of it, then went to class at noon and had a very, very uh, subdued group, obviously, although we did talk. I don't remember what we said. I don't suppose it amounted to much, but I do remember that we all, I think, felt better for kind of hashing it out and sharing our feelings, but uh, very special day. The other thing I think it's important to remember in retrospect is that 9-11 came at a time, supreme irony really, when the United States was at the pinnacle of its post-war power. Uh, We were far and away the most powerful nation economically. Uh, Militarily, nobody came close to challenging us. Uh, what, What scholars have called our soft power, the power of our ideals, the power of ideas, Uh, Those were sort of sweeping the world, so much so that the the French, among others, after the war in Kosovo in the late 90s, started talking about the United States as a hyperpower, someone even for an ally who who they might need to be fearful of. Uh, So that's kind of the starting point. And then when you go and say, how could this possibly happen? Uh, And how could it be done by 
people who you would never, we might never expect would be capable of pulling something off like this. It was a quite remarkable feat looking at it from the other side. Uh, so there's a great irony there, I think, and uh, maybe that helps to explain a lot about how we reacted and, and what happened mm -hmm. subsequently. Well, remind us, if you will, mm -hmm. please, sir, what led up to that uh, day um, in um, other parts of the world uh, that we either some weren't aware of, uh, the, the general public uh, was, I think, uh, ignorant of, of what was building. There have been reports, and I think they're, they, they've, uh, they're factual in, in, in somewhat, that uh, the, our government did know that there was something brewing, the timing of all of that. Just kind of give us a little brief background. Well, I think the best way to go about that is to look a little bit ahead and then backwards at the National Commission, which was appointed to examine why and how this was able to take place. And the major conclusions of that commission were that, one, there had been abundant signs of terrorist activity, including the attack on the U.S. coal, a, a mm -hmm. explosion in the U.S. coal just in the late 90s. Uh, abundant signs were about. Uh, one of the things they concluded was that the two major intelligence agencies, the CIA and the FBI, had they coordinated mm -hmm. better and talked to each other better. And, uh, and ironically, interestingly, this is kind of the way it was in the Pearl Harbor incident too, mm -hmm. where we knew a lot was happening. But if those agencies had been in closer touch and shared information instead of seeing themselves as competing rivals, the picture might have become clearer. But you can go on from that and say that there were plenty of warnings, including the coal, attacks on embassies in Africa, any number of other events in the 90s, an attempt at, on the World Trade uh, Building earlier. Many, many different signs. Uh, interesting, and the Clinton administration had passed on to the Bush administration warnings that things were happening and, and they should give a high priority to terrorism, but you know how new administrations come in and they think the world is their donut and uh, they have their own priorities which were not terrorism. And so they were very late getting to this. And the fact that they were late getting to this, the fact that George Bush got a rather specific warning, not the World Trade Building, but a rather specific warning, not too long before this time, may have contributed to the way they acted in response to it. And I assume we can talk about that as yeah, we well, go along. Remind us of that. <clears throat> remind us of the the, the Yeah. The, well, the let me say the first thing I think it's is fascinating. I mean, it it's always happens in situations like this. Pearl Harbor, uh, the explosion of the Maine in 1898. Inevitably, when you have a situation like this, what they call what we call the rally around the flag response, and that's what happens in the immediate aftermath. Uh, George Bush actually performs well beyond expectations. He gives a quite good speech. He goes up, associates with the with the first responders. is very empathetic. We can hear you. Yeah. Or we hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, very very solid speech. Uh, surprised people with his passion and his his uh, his clarity. 
And then in the early days, uh, I think I remember his public opinion rating was 90%. How often do you mm -hmm. see that? And of course they used this, uh, the administration used this to take some very significant steps. One was something called the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, which was passed by Congress, the whole Congress, with one dissenting vote. Barbara Lee from California, who warned <laughs> significantly and ominously of a blank check, mm -hmm. the dangers of a blank check. Mm -hmm. But in the early days, naturally, people rallied around a president who seemed to be performing well, and uh, uh, lots of things happened, of course. The, the, uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the Patriot Act, I found out only in studying for this, I learned something new every day, that Patriot is an acronym for, if I can find it here, uh, strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Really? Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> and what also happens, uh, Bush's key advisors are uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, who had been in the Nixon White House when, uh, during Nixon's final days, been in the Ford ha White House when uh, Vietnam fell, uh, fell in 1975. They were very much concerned with the passage of, with the loss of power in the presidency, and they set out in the early aftermath of this to bring back as much power as they could and they used uh, the Patriot Act in particular to uh, pull away from the public and Congress uh, authority to uh, respond to this crisis almost without any challenge at what all. What was the Congress's uh, role uh, before the, uh, the act that gave them authority to go to war? In a role in what in particular? In, in declaring any other conflict, or uh, we, we still hear that debate today. We well, have, uh, it, it depends on the time, of course. I mean, the last declaration of war came in uh, 1941, in the Cold War. The sort of the conventional wisdom was that uh, Congress is too clumsy and divided uh, to respond quickly enough in crisis situations, so uh, it's the president who has to act. But of course, you can go back to Thomas Jefferson in uh, going to war with the Barbary pirates. He did this without asking for Congressional. Mm -hmm. So generally, the, the the tendency has leaned towards the presidency. So today, uh, we are continuing that debate. Our, our one of our own uh, senators, uh, Rand Paul. Uh, uh, forcefully makes an argument for congressional uh, And the other approval. thing is that President Trump has pulled out the AUMF of 2001 oh. as a possible mm -hmm. source of power to go to war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. That's why they've declared the Iraqi Revolutionary Guard a terrorist force. Mm -hmm. That makes it possible to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, so back to 9-11. Um, yeah. So these, these debates were going... Uh, on, uh, you mentioned the, the commission. What, what else was found? Uh, well, these, I think the main things were, were what I suggested, uh, the lack of coordination, uh, 
there was no blame to East. Uh, obviously, when you've got a bi bipartisan commission of this sort, they move around that very carefully. But they did uh, make recommendations for tighter coordination, coordina coordination uh, between CIA and FBI. And as I recall, the director of national intelligence came out of this. So you have somebody, yet another layer of bureaucracy, presumably to bring these other uh, uh, agencies to working closer together. And you could say that in terms of dealing with terrorist threats, uh, whatever they put into effect at home worked reasonably well, and that there, there were numerous threats were headed off, and there haven't been uh, major external terrorist threats since that time. But uh, it's, it's uh, so many things I found in here lead from 9-11 right up to today. It's fascinating. They, uh, and that's where I wanted to go, too, if you're ready to go there. I, um, it seems like to me for all of the actions that were taken to, um, to ward off another attack like this, and, and I don't really know if you can if you can call that success in thwarting terrorism. Uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, is that um, uh, they just have not been forceful enough, or I, I'm sure, and, and there are many examples of terrorist activity that has been uncovered uh, by uh, the United States, as well as foreign, uh, friendly foreign entities uh, too. But um, you only have to look to, we, talked about it recently um, with Carolyn DuPont in the podcast we did with her on uh, Russian interference in the voting system. You only have mm -hmm. to look to uh, two years ago, uh, mm -hmm. and we're still unsure, and it seems like to me Congress has not acted uh, to, to even turn that around for the 2020 mm -hmm. election. I, am I right about that? I, I would totally agree with that, uh, and, and I would also go on to say that the rally around the flag phenomenon doesn't last long, and the Bush administration, in the aftermath of 9-11, within weeks, uh, has taken major steps that will change uh, the world and the United States dramatically, and that would include, obviously, what are now called the forever wars, the war with Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, which is still going on, and of course, even more importantly, the war with Iraq, the consequences of which we're still living with, uh, both in terms of, of matters here and particularly matters of the Middle East. So those are the consequences? Uh, those are some of the consequences. Well, what, yeah, what, are, what are the others? Let me, talk, let me talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Um, the first part of the Afghanistan war was a brilliant example of modern American technology in action. We went in to take out al-Qaeda and to take, out, take the Taliban out of power, uh, brilliantly done with uh, precision bombing, in as much as bombing can be precision, it's sort of a contradiction in terms. But somewhere in there, and, and the uh, Taliban was defeated, or at least seemed to be defeated, uh, and Al-Qaeda was crippled. And that's where the 
terrorists who attacked the United States had been based and they were crippled. Uh, at some point, however, uh, the war in Afghanistan shifted into a process of building a democratic government and wiping out the Taliban completely. And of course, the consequences we see now, we're still there, forever war. Um, one Afghan Taliban told an American reporter, you've got the watches, but we've got the time. Mm. And so we're still, we're 18 years now. Mm. We're still in Afghanistan, and just now there are serious peace, talk, peace talks in terms of getting out. And of course, even more than this, the war in Iraq has been critical in uh, its consequences for the United States and for, uh, for the Middle East in particular. Uh, what somebody called it, the original sin of the 21st century for mm -hmm. the Middle East. Because if the purpose of that war was to defeat terrorism, which was kind of unclear, never clear, because there were not terrorists under Saddam Hussein at that time. The purpose of the war was to defeat terrorism, uh, make a democracy, uh, improve our position in the world, uh, then exactly the opposite has taken place it, there. The other term for that is nation building? Uh, is that too strong? Well, they, the first step, of course, was to overthrow mm. Saddam Hussein. And that happened, again, with wonderful, spectacular military precision. But then what do you do next? And that's something that incredibly, incredibly, the administration really put little thought to. State Department did a detailed study, maybe two details, some 40 volumes, something like that. Nobody paid any attention to it, partly maybe because of its length, partly because it was the State Department and the people who were running the show, Cheney and Rumsfeld, didn't trust the State Department, didn't want their advice. So we overthrow Saddam, defeat, uh, win the war militarily, uh, and then what do you do next again? And there, there was woeful preparation. And within a short time, where there had been no terrorists in Iraq before, now you have terrorists in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq which becomes a potent force. You've got a war against uh, uh, a sort of counterinsurgency, guerrilla war going on in Iraq for years. Uh, and the United States is not really able to deal with it. What is the exit strategy? Uh, they didn't have one. Well, do they have one today? Finally, well, they're, I mean, in terms of that, they got out in 2011, but then went back in when ISIS developed out of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So, but that, if the idea, again, is to build democracy, what happens is the opposite. If the idea is uh, uh, to sort of demonstrate American power, what was demonstrated ultimately was America's weakness. And the economic effects of it, the wars were horrendous. Uh, these were the cost of the Iraq war, 5.6 uh, of, the, of the global war on terror, which includes Iraq, $5.6 trillion, which measures out to 24000 per family uh, per year. Uh, 
the world's greatest economic power, uh, triggering the Great Recession also in 2007-2008, a sequence of events that rendered the United States weak. Uh, Again, and one of the major consequences which we don't tend to think of because we tend to think of ourselves here in the United States is the impact of this on the Middle East. Iraq had been a, an important balancer to Iran. Uh, so the, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, uh, the, the emergence of a war in Iraq, uh, weakened that balance. In fact, the Shiites eventually emerge on top in Iran. They're closely connected in, uh, in Iraq. They're connected with Shiites in, Hira- in Iran. And what you have after this point this conflict between Shiites and, and Sunnis spreads all over the Middle East, and you can see remnants of it all over the place today. Uh, so we go in for all of these reasons, some good, some not so good, uh, and the consequences both economically, both militarily, we demonstrate our weakness both politically uh, and in terms of our moral position in the world. When you think of... Uh, uh, the torture, Abu Ghraib, uh, all of those things which call into question the, the, our uh, faithfulness to the very ideals that we uh, profess to stand up for. And I think it uh, is certainly uh, worth mentioning that in where we are still an occupying force or have a presence, there's still loss of life. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Not in the numbers that we had. Uh, what you have now is kind of a proxy war that's grown out of that between uh, Sunni uh, Saudi Arabia and Shiite Iran with Iraq, some Iraqi support. And I think the Bush administration made an enormous mistake, even right when it first took office, by putting us on the side of, uh, by, by taking sides in mm-hmm. this. Uh, I think we've terrific mistake, which uh, we hope it won't lead to war with Iran, but the chances of this are, are I think, significant. Do you see, what, what similarities do you see now, or are there any at all with Iran and, and uh, what we're, we've not able, we're not able to do there and, uh, and what it might lead to? Um, well, it's, uh, it's hard to know from one day to the next. It changes, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, I think that uh, there was a time back in July when it looked like the possibilities of conflict with Iran were quite significant. Uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, I think would both happily admit to being Iranophobes. Uh, they're very much opposed. They, their dislike for Iran goes back probably to 1979. Iran's dislike for us probably goes back to 1953 when we assisted in the overthrow of a duly elected government in Iran and certainly date from the revolution in, in 79. Uh, Pompeo and Bolton persuaded uh, the president to institute a policy of maximum pressure on Iran, uh, and of course the president also took the United States out of the uh, nuclear treaty that had been negotiated with, with painstakingly by the Obama administration. 
I think the idea on the part of uh, Pompeo and uh, Bolton was that if you squeeze Iran hard enough, they'll have the best hope would be a new government that we could deal with more easily. Uh, the other hope would be that they would come back to the negotiating table and negotiate a treaty that would be better than the one that Obama, or I think the president has been, at least in the trade treaties with Canada and Mexico, he was quite happy to accept treaties that looked very much like the tra uh, treaties Obama had negotiated, but they had his name on them, so they were okay. But the Iranians, um, it, it seems like th th they want to get back to the table. One would think so, yes, but they're not going to. Uh, uh, sanctions that we're imposing, sanctions have a very poor record historically. Uh, more, more times than more often than not, when sanctions are imposed, they uh, they they heighten resistance on the part of both the government and the populace. And uh, so I think sanctions are not necessarily not the sort of powerful weapon that these people think they are. Uh, Iran is a proud nation with a long tradition going back to the Persians, and uh, it's not going to. Uh, it's not going to go gently. So I think the still there's still hope of negotiation, but with this administration, it's very hard to know things switch so much from day to day. It's chaotic. Uh, it's uh, it's very hard to know what could happen. Dr. George Herring is uh, the professor emeritus of uh, history at the University of Kentucky, and we've been discussing. Uh, the last uh, 18 years uh, before uh, that and, and leading up to 9-11 and uh, what has happened since. But Dr. Herring, you're such an expert on, uh, on U.S. foreign relations. I don't think I can let this moment go uh, without asking you about something that I, I, I have uh, missed the, uh, the, the, the history of, uh, of it and uh, I have not done the, uh, the homework that I've needed to do to understand it. Why was there a notion about buying Greenland? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, well, Green. Uh, okay. The importance of Greenland is one thing. I mean, it is strategic. It's a very strategic spot, and China is is uh, China is making making noise everywhere, and China is. Uh, is uh, making its present felt in in Greenland, mostly in terms of trade. Uh, Russia has poked around a little bit there, and Greenland has been important to us since 1940-41 uh, uh, as, a, as a position in the North Atlantic. Uh, on the other hand, why anyone would propose to buy it is beyond my humble comprehension, I am sorry to say. <laughs> The, the, the one thing that I saw that was so striking and sort of highlighted the absurdity of it, to borrow a word from, from Denmark, uh, was the picture of, of an iced up Greenland with a golden Trump Tower <laughs> way up in the middle of it. So I, I'm sorry, that's, that's a stumper. I can't... Uh, that, we can only attribute it to the fertile mind of the person who came up with the idea. Dr. George Herring, thanks so much for being here. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.